This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review some issues from my comic book collection, which I will usually select with some degree of randomness. Any books from my comic book collection are eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents each. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they a bargain at 25 cents? Were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 59th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, I'm continuing our number 9 series. We started in episode 49, and here in 59, we're continuing our visit to the year 2099. Get it? So here, we're looking at Doom 2099, issues 2, and 3, and 4, all from Marvel Comics, cover dated February, and March, and April 1993. But first, a little feedback. First up is Luke Giaconetti of the Earth Destruction Directive and Vault of Terror Tales of Horror something. Both of those podcasts are on the Two True Freaks Network. And in the interest of full disclosure, we are also bitter rivals in the Two True Freaks Fantasy Football League. Professor, I was going through some Valiant books the other day, and I was flipping through Turok number 1, which, of course, we covered in episode 50. Now, it has been years since I read this, but as soon as I flipped to the back matter, I had a mental flood of a flashback. If you take a look at the gold pick of the month in the Valiant Bulletin Board, they talk about a comic shop owner named John Teresi in Brewster, New York, who drew a life-size stand-up of Magnus Robot Fighter. The shop was called Comics, Cards, and Video Stop, and I used to work there! It was my first job coming in a couple times a week during summer break in junior high to clean up and work the register. I had forgotten totally about John and Magnus being in the Valiant books that month. Goes to show the bizarre small world of comics. Luke. That is a great story, Luke. Thanks for sharing it. Next up is Darren Sutherland, noted fan of Mike Grell and actor Doug Jones. And also half of the talent behind the podcast... Let's be honest, about one-third of the talent behind the podcast Trekker Talk, which he hosts with his wife, Ruth. Hi, Professor Allen. I'm still meandering through the back catalog and particularly enjoyed your coverage of Free Comic Book Day in episode 51. Your top two comics compelled me to write this short note. Ruth and I are also Doctor Who fans, both the classic series and the new one. Since you and Emily are more focused on story over art, it made me think to ask whether you two have listened to any of the big Finnish audio adventures of the classic Doctors. And I will answer here to say, yes, we have, and also some of the BBC audios as well. And back in the days of the Book Guys show, I was part of a team that interviewed the man behind Big Finish, Nicholas Briggs. Darren recommends these, saying that at times they're better than the stories in the classic TV series, which is probably true. The company basically consists of people who grew up watching the original series, 
And it's obvious the group gets Classic Who. And again, that is certainly the impression that I get from anyone who has listened to the Big Finish audios or has interacted with people involved in the Big Finish audios, including my good and close personal friend and podcast mentor, the Irredeemable Shag. In reference to steampunk Goldilocks, Darren was surprised that I was not familiar with Antarctic Press. I've been reading their comics off and on since the 1980s, and you can find lots of their titles in discount boxes, so I would have thought you would have come across them frequently in the quarter bin. Well, there's probably a lot of stuff I come across, but since I'm not sort of tuned into it, I barely notice it. But I will definitely now keep an eye out for some of their books. Another great episode. Take care, Darren. Thanks, Darren. I appreciate you working your way through the archives. Next up, uh, two notes on last issue. El Diablo 16. First up is fanboy Miss Prime, Jason Trenner. Listened to the episode on El Diablo's final issue, and yeah, it was as weird to me as it was to you. It certainly was a different way to end a series. Also, it seems the place outside his own comic that El Diablo most appeared was Justice League. First in a recruitment drive issue where he turned them down, and then in a Gerard Jones-written Justice League America three-parter. And thanks for that info, Jason. It's glad to see that Jones was committed enough to the character to try to fit him in, in you know, a variety of places in the DCU. Brand new feedbacker Mark Sweeney also wrote in about that issue. Professor Allen, I enjoyed your recap and analysis of El Diablo 16. Good points about the issue. I can see how the story without context could seem a little dull, but I think it's an excellent wrap-up to this unique series. I loved El Diablo, but I will tell you, by not reading the first 15 issues of the series, you would not have missed out on a ton of action. The book's strength lied more in character and world-building. Dos Rios, Texas, was as real a fictional town as I've read about this side of Opal City, inhabited by real people, and I think the writing is some of Gerard Jones's finest, along with maybe G.L. Mosaic. And I can certainly see that. Like I said in that episode, I appreciate the boldness of this idea, and if my expectations for issue 16 had been in a different place, maybe by reading the first 15 issues, that, uh, that that issue probably would have worked better for me. Mark also agreed with my assessment of Mike Parabek's art as a top reason to check out the book. Overall, he recommends this El Diablo series, especially at an 87% markdown. As we've learned in the prior 58 episodes of this podcast, when you pay 25 cents for a book, it can't be that bad. Mark also makes the point that Jason did about Gerard Jones revisiting the town and some of the characters in JLA. We were allowed to check in with a couple of regulars from El Diablo for a panel before Rafael Sandoval was inhabited by an Aztec god who... Well, maybe the less said about this, the better. Okay, Mark. Well then, let's just move on to our issues now. Okay? Doom 2099 numbers 2 and 3 and 4 each had cover prices of $1.25 
meaning I acquired these books at an 80% markdown. By the way, issue one was $1.75. All of these stories were written by John Francis Moore with art by Pat Broderick. All of the covers were also by Broderick. The cover of issue two shows Doom face on, hands extended, firing yellow sort of Kirby crackle at us. Cape flying behind him. It's almost all primary colors. Lots of blue and red and yellow with just a little bit of silvery chrome. A very eye-catching cover. The story, titled The Action of the Tiger, starts with four identical men entering businesses around the world, snagging info about Tiger Wild, the current Latverian leader. Meanwhile, Doom works on building an android that looks like that man from the first page. All of these are Doombot-style androids. It's been two weeks, and over the protest of his allies, Doom is ready to face Wild again. Those android spies have gotten critical info about Wild, who was an Alchemex elite corps soldier who launched a coup in Latveria to take over the nation as an independent power. But where corporate lackeys failed in destroying Tiger Wild, Doom will succeed. Doom and his crew depart this secret island facility before destroying it, removing any evidence that they were ever there. A mining crew in Antarctica digs out the rare element Tritonium, which is usually mined from Saturn's moons. In addition to being highly volatile, the element can actually regenerate, making it extremely valuable. A man with a seven tattooed on his forehead takes possession of the Tritonium for his boss, Tiger Wild. In the Latverian capital city of Godragia, the 99% protest in front of Tiger Wild's corporate HQ. We need food. We won't be ignored. Children are dying. A guardsman hovercraft disperses the angry mob. At the same time, the Latverian Ministry of Defense is infiltrated by an android who explodes inside the premises. Wild and his right-hand man, Zone, analyze the android attack. Pixel serial numbers are revealed, and Wild calls up Pixel CEO DeVargas, who, if you remember, is a rich dude in shrink-wrap plastic to keep the germs out, sort of doing a Howie Mandel cosplay. He assures them that the android was the work of saboteurs, and that he is not double-crossing Wild. Wild seems to maybe believe him. In the Latverian countryside, Doom observes Zephyro gypsies move their possessions into the Mejio Mountains. Fortune explains to him that she leads the council, and Doom needs to consult her before ordering tribe members around. Doom walks through the remains of his castle, and vaguely remembers being an old man decades before. He remembers pain, but the full truth of my past continues to elude me. Fortune returns to Wilde's employ and explains that she had spent a few weeks fulfilling tribal obligations. He responds by backhanding her, sending her tarot cards flying. The topmost card ends up being the inverted hangman. Chaos. Uncertainty. Destruction. Wire pretends to be interested in signing up with the guardsman, but the recruiter is distracted by Xandra busting a window. 
This gives Wire a chance to download info on Tritonium. The recruiter catches him and demands answers, but Wire is rescued by a disguised newcomer who demands to see Doom. Elsewhere, Doom meets the mercenary named Poet, who offers help, asking nothing in return. Nothing yet, he says. He comments that the Tritonium is almost as dangerous as Doom is. Doom intercepts a transport plane, confronting Rook Seven, the man seen earlier with a Seven tattoo. They fight on the plane, which crashes on the runway. It bursts into flames. Doom emerges, alive, Tritonium in hand. Tell Tiger Wild that Doom has returned, and that war is declared. The cover of issue three shows Doom looming menacingly. I mean, looming awesomely over Tiger Wild's building. It's a very modern take on that classic symbolic Doom pose in the background over you know, the FF's building or something like that. Again, strong use of primary colors, blue, red, yellow, with just a little bit of other colors here and there. Again, very nice. And these two covers together actually sort of go together. There's a, a consistency of, of the branding, if you will. The story, titled Unto the Breach, starts with a conference at Doom's mountainside aircraft hangar. His team is concerned about trusting the man who claims to be Doom. Xander admits that Doom isn't one of them, and may not even be human. Doom makes himself known by phasing into the room. In times of revolution, humanity is an overrated commodity. A man runs off a pier to extinguish his burning self in the Siri River. Zone asks a man named Markov if he wants to be next. Zone is trying to locate the Tritonium for Tiger Wild, but Markov doesn't know where it is. Tiger grants the man the mercy of a quick death, but he is no closer to the Tritonium, or no closer to Doom. Back in the village, Doom's voice booms from a transport, promising to free the Latverian people. The transport opens, and Doom shows himself. Food and supplies are dropped, leaving the Latverians grateful. A huge Pixel Corp airship hovers just outside Tiger Wild's HQ. Inside, Wild and the germophobic DeVargas negotiate. Both are distressed over the disappearance of the Tritonium. Wild assures him that Doom will be found and the element recovered. But DeVargas's confidence in Wild is waning, to say the least. Meanwhile, Wire has been surfing cyberspace. No, actually, like the Silver Surfer, except green and with some cool 90 shades. He's not actually surfing physically. He's wearing, like, Google Glass. But he is also surfing in the computers. He exits Wild's security net, finding an encrypted all-points bulletin that he grabs for review later. Back in the real world, the offline world, Wire decrypts the bulletin, learning that Pixel is willing to negotiate with Doom for the Tritonium. Then we get two two-page spreads, for which we have to turn the book the other way. On these pages, we see Doom planning his takeover. He makes a surprise appearance in Vargas's ship, terrifying him by bringing outside germs into his chambers. 
Doom makes an offer to refrain from using the Tritonium as a weapon against Pixel in exchange for DeVargas withdrawing support for Wild. Wild agrees pretty much just so Doom will go away and take his germs with him. He pretty much would have agreed to anything at that point. Tiger Wild has become suspicious that Zone might be working against him, but Zone is able to get him to listen to reason. He shows Wild a surveillance image that clearly shows Doom walking with fortune into the hangar. Doom seeks out Vox, the gypsy tribe's mute healer. He hopes to restore his fragmented memories. Vox's hand gestures put Doom in a trance, allowing him to relive some of his memories. Fortune visits Wilde's office for another tarot reading, but Wilde confronts her about her betrayal. He selects a card from the top of her deck, the Death Card. As Doom grows closer to discovering parts of his past, Xander breaks his concentration. Doom scolds her for the disturbance, but she directs his attention to the scene outside the hangar, where Tiger Wilde is riding a small but heavily armed gunship. Surrender, Doom, or I will bury you and your gypsies beneath this mountain. Let's take a break here, so you can catch your breath, get your heartbeat back down during the promos. We'll be right back with our recap of Issue 4. Hey kids, do you like comics? Uh-huh. Do you like Iron Man comics? Uh-huh. Do you want to learn more about Iron Man's downward spiral from alcoholism, fear of commitment, and feelings of inferiority leading the egomaniac into a life of misery? Uh, what? Then listen to the Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition and see Tony Stark go from genius billionaire playboy philanthropist to genius billionaire playboy philanthropist with awesome weaponized armor! Relive classic stories like Demon in a Bottle, Armor Wars, Doom Quest, and more. Hosted by me, Mike Staley. So how about it, kids? Do you want to listen to the Invincible Iron Cast? Uh-huh. Well, too bad. You need to do your homework. Uh-huh. The Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition. On iTunes or at invincibleironcast.podbean.com. Trekker Talk, a fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We'll be discussing the stories, characters, and art in this excellent retro sci-fi adventure series, as well as having side conversations about other areas of fandom. We hope you'll join us as we travel from the dangerous back streets of New Gallif to the depths of outer space and everywhere in between. Trekker Talk is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And we're back. The cover of issue four is distinctly different from the prior two issues. This one puts Tiger Wild front and center, giving it a gleaming gold palette. Doom is cringing in the corner, 
and Wilde is about to crush our hero with some big old piece of equipment that he's holding over his head. He is babbling some nonsense about bowing before King Tiger Wilde the First. This is crazy talk. And I must turn the page quickly and discover the lies that are here on the cover. The story, titled Fire Answers Fire, starts with the Latverian mountain range being pounded by Tiger Wild's air power. His forces are committed to annihilating the gypsies inside the once-hidden mountain hangar. Having a difficult time holding off the army, they sort of wonder where Doom is. The hangar is blasted open and Tiger Wild and his army enter, dragging Fortune along behind. She sees that Wire has been injured. The despot demands that the gypsies give him both Doom and the Tritonium, or he will start executing gypsies one at a time right in front of Fortune. Doom appears as a hologram. You must face me first. They will meet one-on-one in exchange for the Tritonium. Zone, Wild's aid, reminds a while that the Tritonian regenerates after it explodes, so he can just destroy the mountain on top of Doom and collect the Tritonium later. But now this is something personal for Wild, and he agrees to Doom's terms. Xander isn't wild about this, and demands to know if Doom just sees the gypsies as, as cannon fodder. Doom explains that he is simply preventing Wilde from using the Zavero as leverage against him. He has Xander lead the tribe's healer, Vox, away from the mountain as the mute child is a powerful mystic, but he is no warrior. Xander continues to threaten Doom, who smiles behind the mask at her fiery nature. He will do what needs to be done. He will reclaim what is rightfully his, his country, his people, his throne. Xandra and Vox reach the surface and look for a safe passage around Wilde's troops. Xandra admits feeling helpless, while a shadowy figure sneaks up from behind. Tiger Wilde heads straight at Doom, blasting his way through several floors of hangar, eventually reaching the correct sub-basement. He finds the Tritonium rigged to a timer. Doom emerges from the shadows to face him, while taunts him with the prospect of killing his people. They are gypsies. They will survive, no matter the outcome. Wild unleashes a disruption field, which worked on Doom back in issue one, but it doesn't fry his circuitry this time. Because back then, he'd been wearing his 20th century old-school armor but his new armor can rechannel Wilde's energy right back at him. Topside, the stranger clamps a hand on Xandra's mouth. Quiet, girl. But she grabs his hand and throws him to the ground, only to discover that this mystery man is poet. Xandra sends Vox to old Dorothea's cabin in the woods, where an old woman should be able to take care of him. Poet takes Xander to a small airship where they stock up on weaponry, including neural grenades, which kind of surprises Xander. I thought only Stark Fujikawa Elite had access to these. I know where to shop. They use Poet's grenade launcher to take out the pilots of the guardsmen's ships. Once they're incapacitated, the pair take out the ship's stabilizers and they crash into each other and then crash into the ground. Inside the hangar, Zone witnesses these explosions and realizes that the gypsies are better armed than his reconnaissance suggested. 
He's had enough of the Severo, and especially of Fortune. He places his gun against her temple, but Poet and Xander arrive just in time to rescue her, riddling Zone with gunfire. Fortune scolds Poet for coming back, but he replies, No need to thank me, darling. We need to get your people out of here before the guardsmen call reinforcements. Back inside the basement, Doom and Wild continue their fight, with the energy beams and fire blasts totally filling the room like an orange and yellow fog. They continue to jibber-jabber and taunt each other before Doom realizes that he is sort of slowing down. You see, Wild diverted some power to knock out the sub-basement structural supports. He brings the entire ceiling crashing down on Doom, who can't defend himself. He knows that he will not survive this. Doom is buried in the rubble and flashes back to a memory of being similarly trapped once before by unknown forces. Wild slams a huge piece of machinery right into Doom, crushing him even more. I thank you, Doom, for shaking me out of my administrative complacency. Now I will begin worldwide corporate acquisition. Too bad you won't be around to watch me redefine hostile takeover. Wild sees that the Tritonium device has been activated. There are only seconds remaining. Doom emerges from the wreckage. It is a good day to die. He reveals that he was saved by his armor's failsafe systems. The two gladiators have last words before the Tritonium explodes in their faces, destroying the mountain around them. The man calling himself Doom found little legacy of his past in this world of the future. All that remained was a mountainside hangar built as a safe haven. As the mountain explodes with titanic force, the remains of Doom's 20th century life atomizes into dust. The gypsies who had escaped the mountain just in time watched the explosion, wondering if Doom survived and lamenting their future once every corporate raider tries to lay claim to the Tritonium. But Fortune sees it first. I don't believe it. Doom emerges from the flames, declaring that he is risen. The one-page denouement takes place three days later. Doom and Fortune stand atop Tiger Wilde's former skyscraper. They discuss Latveria's future, which is stronger than it was under Wilde. For one thing, the Tritonium will power the nation into the next century. Doom seems to be turning his eyes beyond Latveria. I have returned to a world teetering on the brink of destruction. If total anarchy is to be avoided, this world must be rebuilt, restructured. And I am the architect of that future. probably don't remember this, but I had mentioned more than once that this episode we'd just be covering issues two and three. That was before picking them up a month or so ago to start prepping for the episode that I learned or remembered or realized that this storyline of the confrontation with Tiger Wild actually ends in issue four, and I recently did a three-issue episode with Loki, so I thought I could handle one here with Doom. It just made sense if I'm doing multiple issues anyway that I would and the episode where the arc ended. And what an ending this is. Issue 1 
was the setup, the sort of the world origin, the world building, if you will, for the whole series. And then these three issues represent really the first battle for Doom, the first step towards restoring himself to his proper place in society. For no matter what the era is, what time frame we're in, Doom matters. Doom makes his presence known. So at this point, he's begun to restore Latveria, and as as we saw at the very end of issue four there, he seems to have goals that go beyond his country's shores. I mentioned last time we talked about Doom that John Francis Moore added Shakespeare quotes at the end of each issue. And I didn't want to interrupt the summaries by including those before, but they're all good, so I'm going to go over them here. All are from Henry V. For issue two, in peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest, stillness, and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. For issue three, once more into the breach, dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead. In issue four, fire answers fire, and through their paley flames each battle sees the other's umbered face. I like how Moore picked quotes that usually went with the title, though I suppose it was probably the other way around. Find a Shakespeare quote that contained a phrase that could be used as a title for the issue and then go from there. I, I do wonder what this process was whether this was totally John Francis Moore's doing, or if an editor was involved, or whether he had to convince an editor that the Shakespeare quotes were a cool idea. Again, I have no idea about the inner workings of the 2099 line, unfortunately. But whatever that process and however it happened, I, I do think that the Shakespeare lines increase the sense of drama, of foreboding, maybe just of, of importance to what is happening in these stories. It gives them a sense of class, a sense of dignity that, frankly, Doom deserves. A few thoughts issue by issue. What I liked about issue two was that we skipped ahead a few weeks and Doom and his crew were still in that that pixel uh, facility in South America. I like that the action does not continue chronologically from the prior issue. It certainly does follow on thematically. I like that Doom was you know, husbanding his resources, laying his plans, determining his next steps, operating behind the scenes, really. He sent out those sort of 2099 version of Doom bots to do the hacking and downloading. The fact that the androids had to physically be on site for each company to do that did sort of date the issue. But as we said last time we looked at this comic, projecting 100 plus years into the future is not very easy, so it was Some of those technology things get a pass from me. And even though Doom does not confront Wilde directly in this issue, he certainly makes his presence felt. And a lot really does get done here. We see Tiger Wilde has led Latveria into poverty for the people, and they are protesting. I like this aspect of the story, as it does show Doom as not just being about power for power's sake, but also at least a little bit to better treat his people, his his nation. Again, really good issue laying the groundwork for this Tritonium MacGuffin and why every corporate leader would want it. Doom has learned enough in these two weeks to know what's important. He has discovered the fulcrum 
on which his revolution will turn. And this guy de Vargas in the freeze-wrapped cryogenic plastic? Between Pat Broderick's pencils and the combination of the inking and the coloring, it is a look that is both totally futuristic and really, really weird. And I think that's probably what they are going for, so mission accomplished artists. In issue three, I think we really see for the first time that Tiger Wilde is a legitimate villain. Because his look is so totally 90s. And I don't mean that in a good way. He doesn't really make a good first impression. He could have been a joke. He kind of looks like a joke with the actual tiger stripes and all that. But here we see that he is tough. He is powerful. And that's important to reinforce at this point. He did defend himself against Doom's attack in issue one. He won that first skirmish. So he had some sense of his power. But it's reinforced here. And you need to build him up to make his eventual defeat by Doom uh, meaningful as well as impressive. I mentioned this in the synopsis, but there are two consecutive two-page turn-the-book-sideways spreads that were both pretty good. You know, doing that once is a gimmick, but doing it twice in a row is a bold, bold choice. I, I don't know the last time I saw that tactic used of having two consecutive two-page portrait spreads. You'd really like to know again if that's an art choice that was totally on Pat Broderick. Was it totally Moore's idea or some combination of both? Again, bold, a little offbeat. But it really gave Broderick some room to display his ability to do some really detailed work. I generally don't like having to turn the book. And I know that Ed Moore hates two-page spreads for digital reading, but these sort of work, you know, because they're still portrait, they're pretty much in the right aspect ratio. You know, the right height to width. So getting two of these in a row made turning the page, I don't know, worth the effort, if you will. So in that sense, though gimmicky, I think these two pages, or I guess we'd say these four pages, pretty much worked for me. I also just mentioned a few minutes ago how hard it can be to project this far into the future and reading it. 25 years after it was written, but more than 80 years before it takes place, the technology stuff is going to seem wonky. Wires surfing the net. It's just not a great visual. I'm guessing it may have been cool at the time, but it's one of those things that became way too out of date way too quickly. In issue four, as much as this is a mano-a-mano, knockdown, drag-out, all-out action issue, there are a couple bits of character work that I really like. And in both cases, I, I assume these are clues being being laid, threads that get picked up on in, in later issues. First, I like this character of Poet. His visual is a bit 90s-ish, but somehow it doesn't look dated, it doesn't look silly. He claims that he is the only outsider on the tribe's side. In issue four, he lays down a mystery that we will learn more about soon, I hope. He says, it's not Doom's side that I'm on. Long story. I'll explain it sometime. So we have some nice mystery, some nice intrigues happening here. And also the character of Vox, the, the mute healer. The boy that Doom seems to have a connection with. He believes that Vox may be the key to learning more about himself, his past. Who he really is, how he got to where he is, how he got to when he is. So I don't know if that's the only reason that he is specifically protected in this issue, 
or, again, if there's even more mystery to a story than that. But issue four was about the fight, the action. And what can he say? It was great. It was well-paced, some great dialogue in there as well to break it up, and excellent work making Doom into a likable character. At least the one you want to win, the, the one you root for. And that's in at least an anti-hero sort of way. And I think at times the character here in Doom 2099 especially is a flat-out hero. The verdict on Doom 2099 numbers 2 and 3 and 4. There is a reason why I consider this my favorite comic book series ever. And it's story like this. It's issues like these. Love, love, love the title. Especially here at the beginning, when this was fresh, when this was new. This is a crazy concept. Giving one of your lead villains, for lack of a better word, a lead spot in your new line of books. But it was executed so well. More story and script, Broderick's detailed pencil work, a terrific match. A great batch of issues, and of course these are bargains. Each one, a legitimate quarter bin deal. That wraps up my coverage of Doom 2099, numbers 2, 3, and 4, bringing episode 59 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. I previously mentioned David Ellis and Amy Morgan, the hosts of the short-lived 2099 Bitmapped podcast, which released about a dozen episodes four or five years ago. In episodes 5 and 7 and 9 of that show, they covered these three issues. So if you want another take, check out that podcast. Again, it's 2099 Bitmapped. In episode 60, well, I'm not really sure. I have some special episodes coming up that are somewhat calendar-locked, specific time frames to release those episodes. And so, depending on what else we end up with in terms of short box showcases or other things that we drop into the feed, I'm just not sure. It'll probably just be something random, but it may end up being one of those theme shows or special episodes. I honestly just don't know right now. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.